From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. In the summer of 2017, the wreckage of the Navy cruiser Indianapolis was discovered some 18,000 feet under the Philippine Sea. The USS Indianapolis's remains were just recently discovered some 72 years after its loss, and they were discovered by an expedition team led by Microsoft billionaire and philanthropist Paul Allen. The ship was sunk by the Japanese on July 30th, 1945, 74 years ago next week. That was just weeks after the star of the U.S. fleet had completed a top-secret mission, delivering to Tinian Island the core components of the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Of the nearly 1,200 men on board, about 300 perished when two Japanese torpedoes struck. The 900 remaining men spent five days in shark-infested waters. Of them, only 316 were saved after being spotted by an aviator almost by accident. Those horrific days at sea were recounted by a haunting monologue from the movie Jaws. It is a remarkable story told by Sarah Vladek, a filmmaker, writer, and historian, and Lynn Vincent, a Navy veteran and former investigative journalist, in the book Indianapolis, the true story of the worst sea disaster in U.S. naval history and the 50-year fight to exonerate an innocent man. I spoke with Sarah and Lynn just before they appeared at the Savannah Book Festival and first asked Sarah how she learned of the story as a teenager. Um, I actually was watching a documentary about World War II with my father, and they talked about the end of World War II and reduced the line or the the story of the Indianapolis to a single line, which was she was the ship that carried the bomb Mm. and was sunk. And that's all there was. And so um, being a kid who liked mystery and thought that there was really more to this story, I kind of went to the library and you know, looked for books and there wasn't anything in my library. There wasn't anything in history books at that time. There were books that had been published, but I didn't have access to them. And I thought, oh my gosh, this would be an incredible story. I hope someone tells it someday. And, you know, I didn't know at that time that it would be me, but no one by the time that I had graduated from college had really done this story as a movie. And that's kind of how I wanted to tell it initially. And so when I graduated, I reached out to the survivors organization. And this was, you know, um, USS Indianapolis survivors organization and found Paul Murphy and Mary Lou Murphy, who was the chairman and secretary of the group. And they invited me to a reunion. And that was really the first time I actually got to meet the crew of Indianapolis and learn their story. And over the years, I spent a couple years with them going to their reunions and going to their homes and meeting them. And they actually asked me to be their storyteller. And that, to me, was one of the you know greatest honors and privileges I've ever had. So I said yes, and I thought, oh, it'll take a year or two at most. And, <laughs> and that was, what, 20 years ago? <laughs> 17. So, well, almost 18 now. So, <laughs> yeah, it took a little while. So, Sarah, you started working with Lynn, and both of you discovered all there was to, you could find about FDR's ceremonial ship of state. Uh, the Indianapolis took two years to build, christened in 1930. And the book is a, a detailed map of the ship, but also the sense of what it was like to be on this massive cruiser. Can you distill that for us, what it was like? Well, one of the, the privileges that came with getting to know the survivors for both Lynn and I was that they really shared their stories of you know, these were 16, 17, and 18-year-old young men 
going on to these giant ships, you know, the biggest thing they'd ever seen prior to this was a tractor. And they're going to war. They're going on to serve on this ship. And they would tell these stories and not just the big battle stories, but the little stories, the playing pranks on each other or sitting around playing cards or chipping paint and, you know, crud off the deck or, you know, scrubbing pans, cooking. You know, one of the great stories we learned, uh, Sal Maldonado was a young man who was a baker. And when he came home from the war, you know, to deal with it, he made pies. Well, he didn't know how to make pies for one person. He made pies for hundreds. Hmm. So his whole family got sick of pie because he could only make them in large batches. So we'd learn these little stories and things that would really bring ship life to life for us, having not served myself aboard a ship. You know, I didn't know what it was like, but I really got to see it and feel it and know it through these men and this relationship built over 17 years. It was everyday stories that helped us tell Indianapolis. That was one of the things that we really wanted to do. We wanted to write a serious history that was also blended with stories of everyday shipboard life so that it wouldn't just be, you know, names and dates and battles and so forth, but that you could really get a sense of what it was like to be this 17-year-old sailor or 18-year-old sailor, or indeed what it was like to be a wife waiting at home after having sent your your husband to war or a mother waiting at home after having sent their son to war. So we really wanted to, you know, put the two uh, storytelling methods together to bring the whole thing to life and make this uh, very seriously researched history read more like a, a novel. Yeah. Uh, one of those wives referred to the Indianapolis as the other woman who uh, <laughs> who her husband spent so much time with. But there were these 1,196 men, a mix of people, as you said. What role did Indianapolis serve in the Pacific Fleet? And, and give us a sense, if you would, if what was going on at that time when the book opens. This is the spring of 1945. Iwo Jima captured a few weeks before, and they're closing in on Okinawa. What was happening? I'm really glad you asked that question because this is one of our primary aims in writing this book. Uh, up until this point, there have been several worthy books written about Indianapolis, but they seem to really uh, not place her in her proper historical context. She was the flagship of the Pacific Fleet. From her decks, the much of the Pacific cam uh, campaign was waged from um, Midway all the way to the Japanese home islands. And uh, Admiral Raymond Spruance, who was the commander of the Pacific Fleet, uh, it was uh, Indianapolis was his flagship. And as you said, when the book opens in the spring of 1945, Indianapolis has just finished uh, conquering Iwo Jima and is closing in on Okinawa. Okinawa was the last stepping stone en route to the Japanese home islands. And at this point, we'd been at war for four years in the Pacific. And so it's really uh, closing in on a climactic moment. And by that time, the Manhattan Project had already been underway for two years and of course, no one knows that the story of Indianapolis and the story of General Leslie Groves and the Manhattan Project are going to intersect. But uh, we do go into that about how those two stories intersect. My guests are Sarah Vladek and Lynn Vincent, co-authors of Indianapolis, the true story of the worst sea disaster in U.S. naval history and the 50-year fight to exonerate an innocent man. The Indianapolis sank on July 30th of 1945. I also want to get from you a, a sense of what was going on for the Imperial Japanese Army at this point. They were losing ground, but at that point, 
still unwilling to surrender, even though there may have been some signs of it at that time. Early in the Pacific War, the Japanese was just sweeping down the Pacific Rim, conquering island after island after island, taking them from country after country. But by this point, their losses had begun to mount up. And yet the the Japanese had this amazing war ethic and this amazing bravery. They were willing to sacrifice everything for their country and for their emperor, who they regarded as a god. But by this time, um, even though the Japanese had been dominant early in the war, by this time the Americans had, had figured out how to, how to fight at sea. And um, they were just pounding Japan and taking territory after territory back. And so um, by the time we open... In the spring of 1945, the Japanese really only have one major surface threat left, and that is the supership Yamato, which when it was sunk, that was the end of Japanese surface resistance in the entire Pacific War. And so all they had left were their submarines, and at Okinawa, for example, all the Japanese army could really do was hunker down in caves and trenches and wait for the American forces to invade and, and try to do the best they could to defend Okinawa, not in hopes of achieving a victory, but by that time hoping to just negotiate some kind of peace that didn't involve outright surrender. Because, of course, to outright surrender in the Japanese, Japanese way of thinking what would be very, very shameful. The, in the beginning of the book, there are these details of a kamikaze strike in April of 1945. This was in the last months of the war, the Japanese getting increasingly desperate. So there's a great bit in the book about the kind of details and decisions that went into the strategy for Japan to use kamikaze. Was it a sign of desperation? It was a sign of desperation. Um, like Lynn had mentioned, at this point, really, you know, they were at the last of their surface warfare, they couldn't turn to much else. And so they turned to the skies and, you know, they had these young teenagers, which were voluntold to, you know, be pilots that would crash into targets. And it seemed that this was the last great big option they had in order to have any kind of defense. Yeah, and the, there's a hit by a Japanese kamikaze plane and the bomb carried by it exploded on the deck of the of the Indianapolis. And the scramble for men, uh, just unbelievable stories like this 19-year-old Troy Nunley, given split-second choices, what kind of things happened at that moment? Well, it's early in the morning and it's kind of, you know, the sun is in the guy's eyes and they weren't, you know, they had been on alert for attacks, but a plane coming right at the ship without warning really sends everybody into, you know, battle action. And so these young men are dogging hatches, you know, that when the bomb went through the decks and then exploded into the water and came back through, that's when it caused the most damage and flooded compartments. And so in order to save the ship, they had to dog down these hatches. Well, that involved trapping men in there before they could get out. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, you know, nine men were killed in the kamikaze attack and most were because they were trapped. You know, there was one young man who was killed almost on impact, but the rest were trapped. And that's devastating for these young men to have to lock their their friends beneath decks when they can hear them, but they can't get them out safely. And, you know, you have to understand, too, they have to decide whether it's the saving of the ship or saving of an individual. And when you have, you know, 
almost 1,200 souls aboard ship, you really have to think of the big picture. Mm. And so these young men were making these critical decisions very, very quickly. Well, in addition to suffering some, the, the ship did not sink at that point, but it lost some of its luster of uh, impenetrability, I think, and, and limped back to Karama Island. Why, why couldn't it stay there for repairs? Why did it have to go on to Pearl Harbor? Karama had just been acquired by the Allies, and so it really wasn't equipped to handle the kind of repairs that Indianapolis needed. And so, you know, they patched her up in order to get her home to get back to Pearl and then eventually Mare Island where she had an overhaul. But, you know, this was just something to keep her afloat. And they put cement patches and welding on on board the ship just as a temporary fix. Well, the ship did make it to safe harbor, though its air of impenetrability was certainly shattered, and its final ultra-top secret mission yet to come. You can hear more about that with Sarah Vladek and Lynn Vincent, authors of Indianapolis, right after the break. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott with authors Sarah Vladek and Lynn Vincent. They co-wrote the book Indianapolis about a star of the U.S. fleet that sank 74 years ago this month. Today on the show, we're learning details about the story of that Navy cruiser. It was sunk by Japanese torpedoes in the final days of World War II, an attack that came just weeks after delivering nuclear materials and components of the first atomic bomb to Tinian Island in the Mariana Archipelago, which was the launching point for the U.S. attack on Hiroshima. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. That is President Harry Truman announcing the result to the nation. We're going to pick up on the story from before the break. The Indy hobbled back eventually to Mare Island. This was off the coast of California. Men were given leave, but then called back for a mysterious, highly secretive mission. The moral questions of the use of the atomic bomb to force the Japanese to surrender have been thoroughly debated. But I did ask Lynn Vincent about her read on this decision made by Truman only months into his presidency. It's really interesting. When we first uh, set out to write this piece, we thought, oh, gosh, there are all these moral questions swirling around the use of both atomic bombs on Japanese cities. And the way we decided to handle it is to show the struggle that took place at the time. So even the scientist who first came up with the nuclear fission chain theory and urged, along with Albert Einstein, urged the United States to develop an atomic weapon, even though he was the one that came up with the idea, he later petitioned the government and said, no, it would be immoral to drop these kinds of weapons on the Japanese people. Even Admiral Nimitz, the commander-in-chief of the Pacific Fleet, opposed using the bomb up until the very end. Truman himself also struggled with the moral questions. And so what it came down to was how many lives will be lost in a homeland island invasion of Japan 
versus how many will be lost if we drop these bombs. And in the end, the numbers came out to be, you know, tens of thousands of lives lost if the bombs were used versus up to a million lives lost in a home island invasion. And so those were the moral questions that were wrestled through. And eventually, because of um, the Japanese demonstrating that they would never, never surrender, uh, that that was the decision that Truman made to drop the bomb. And of course, he dropped, excuse me, the um, Army Air Force dropped one on August 6th, 1945, and one on August 9th, 1945. And then the surrender happened on August 15th, 1945. When the decision was made to carry these parts of the bomb to Tinian, which is in the Mariana Islands, who knew that it was on board the Indianapolis? So there were two men who knew that the bomb components were being transferred, and that was James Nolan and um, Robert Furman. And these men were part of the Manhattan Project and had been selected by Leslie Groves exactly for that reason, to make sure that the cargo was carried safely, that if the ship was lost, it would be, you know, if there was one thing saved and the ship was lost, it would be the components of the bomb. Because Mm. we didn't have enough of the uranium to build another bomb quickly enough if it was lost. So it would have taken another, it was six to eight months or something, you know, something along those lines in order to gather enough uranium to build another bomb. So Captain McVeigh didn't even know that this was on board a ship, or he didn't know what it was. He didn't know what it was. He had some guesses, but, you know, it was never confirmed nor denied. No one told him, but he did not know. He was not read into the mission. And the crew also had their suspicions of what it was. It was some of the theories were very interesting. Oh, yes. The crew, I mean, remember these, again, for the most part, these are really young men, some teenagers. And so they made bets on what this cargo was. Everything from Rita Hayworth's undergarments, you know, because she'd be appearing at the USO shows or, you know, toilet paper for General MacArthur. And so you can imagine they're, they know this thing is something important, but they don't know what So there wasn't a lot of great regard for General MacArthur in general on board this ship. But how about Captain McVeigh? Can you give us a little sense of his relationship with the crew and with the officers on board? This is a man from a line of Navy officers. Captain McVeigh was a sailor's man. The crew loved him. He was fairly new to the ship. He had come aboard in November of 1944 as the new captain and, you know, The men were getting used to him as the new commander of their vessel, but he really spent time with the enlisted men. You know, he wasn't just an officer's guy. He would go down into the galley and make sure that the men were getting good food where, you know, most officers wouldn't spend the time doing that at the time. So, you know, he cared about these men and they cared about him. And it really showed later, you know, when it came to, you know, I won't give the spoiler away, but When it came time to defend their captain, there wasn't a single man who didn't stand behind him. Mm -hmm. So then they dropped this off. uh, It's a kind of a comical description of there was a kind of elaborate decoy, a big crate that was moved out. And then these two gentlemen, Robert Furman and James Nolan, carrying these components of the atomic bomb out in what, canisters or something like that? Yes, they were. Two canisters that were described as looking like old-fashioned ice cream freezers, but the one canister that had the actual uranium in it was very, very heavy because 
at that time, um, uranium was the densest and heaviest of natural elements. And so what they had to do was thread a pole through eye bolts that were screwed into the top of the canisters and have sailors carry carry the pole on top of their shoulders with the two canisters dangling off each end. Well, uh, so they look like headhunters. <laughs> yes, exactly. In some old cartoon or something like that, carrying this, you know, after sitting with it, sleeping next to these components of the atomic bomb. And we, of course, know what happened then. But they dropped this off and then they were supposed to go to Guam for what McVeigh hoped would be training for the crew, some of which was pretty green. Why did they not have an escort? They didn't have an escort because at that time, the Southern Philippine Sea was considered safe. Indianapolis was supposed to next go from Guam to the Philippines. And that is a, almost a straight westbound shot over the great vast expanse of the South Pacific. And at that time, the Navy considered that part of the ocean safe. Not only that, but the escort, the destroyer escorts, and, and for listeners who aren't familiar with what an escort was, ships like cruisers and other capital ships, not all of them had underwater sound detection. And so they would be escorted by a destroyer or a destroyer escort, which is a different kind of ship, so that those smaller, faster, more agile ships with sound detection equipment could keep an eye out for submarines. By this time, you know, we're getting very close to the end of the war. And a lot of the dis the uh, destroyer escort fleet had been uh, beaten up pretty well. They were in for repairs. And most of the war was taking place now in the northern Pacific. And so that was the priority area for escort ships. So with that being the case and the southern Philippine Sea being considered more safe, they decided that Indianapolis did not need an escort to sail from Guam to the Philippines. So this is kind of an incredible thing about this book and this story that, you know, this ultra top secret mission is completed. And then, you know, this whole chain of events gets set off an elaborate cat and mouse game with the with the Indianapolis and this Japanese sub. And this is led by a man named Machitsura Hashimoto. Can I get a little background on his character and his strategy? He had been commanding submarines back to Pearl Harbor. You know, he was there for that attack. And so he had watched, well, depending on what side you're on, but unfortunately for the Japanese, the submarine program had been quite a huge failure. And so, you know, now we're bringing in these Kayatin, which are essentially kamikaze submarines. You know, the men would be strapped to these submarines that, you know, they could only be sent off to hit a target and they could not return. So they were suicide vessels. And Hashimoto really didn't, he wasn't an advocate of using them. He would use them if he had to. And so this was part of the strategy, however, that they were, you know, ordered to use these Kayatin. And these Kayatin pilots were very eager to serve and die for their emperor. And so they wanted to be used. And in this situation with the Indianapolis, you know, they came up at midnight. It was a cloud-covered night. And when they surfaced, the clouds parted and the light shone on the ship. And it was right in their path. And so Hashimoto could have used the Kaitens, but he knew that he could aim, fire, and hit the Indianapolis and wouldn't need those Kaitens. So he opted to not use them, much to their dismay, and um, fired 
we believe it's six torpedoes, uh, two of which actually made contact with Indianapolis. Sarah Vladek and Lynn Vincent are my guests. They co-wrote the book Indianapolis. It's about the worst sea disaster in U.S. naval history. The ship was sunk by Japanese torpedoes on July 30th of 1945, 74 years ago next week. It is just breathtaking uh, what happens. With such detail, you tell us about that night, July 30th, 1945, when Hashimoto's submarine finally got a clear shot. The bow of the Indies hanging on by a sliver. How long did it take to go down? It only took 12 minutes from the time of impact until the ship had entirely disappeared. It was 12 minutes. So, you know, we've been talking longer than that to mm. give you an idea. It's It was very quick and the ship had lost power almost instantly. And so there was not light. There was not, you know, I mean, there were battle lanterns, but it was a moon covered night. So it was very, very dark. It was pitch black on the bridge. There was no ability to convey or project sound across the ship. So anything that had, you know, orders that were given were, you know, voice to voice, man to man. And these men, you know, were woken up. Most of them had just gone to sleep because it was just after midnight and they'd gotten off their shift and they were just laying down to go to sleep and the torpedoes hit. And so they were, you know, somewhat disoriented. What was really interesting to me, one of the uh, survivors by the name of Jim Jarvis talked about what woke him up was not the torpedo hit, but the fact that everything went silent on the ship. So Mm. all these motors, all these, you know, the ventilation system, all these different things that were running that always had a constant hum went silent. And that's what woke him up. And so, you know, and then it was kind of an ordered chaos from what we were told, where men knew what they were supposed to do. But, you know, you also have everything below decks filling with water very quickly. The, you know, they were not receiving any word from the the bridge to the engine rooms to tell them to cut off power to stop the um, propellers. And so the ship is pushing forward as the bow is torn off. It's just taking water in and it's going throughout all the various compartments of the ship. And she's sinking fast and, you know, she's listing eventually to, you know, 45 degree angle where men can't even stand on the decks. And then she starts going down by the head. Mm. It is amazing for me to read the the presence of mind that they had, you know, getting fire hoses, trying to seal off steam room, engine rooms. And this is all done in the dark with no communication because the communication is down. Everything to save the ship. And there are just incredible details here. And you note in the book that men were forbidden from keeping journals in case they fell into the wrong hands. So how did you assemble all of these details? We were so fortunate, number one, to have the first-person accounts that Sarah gathered up over those, by the time we got started, it had been 13, 14 years. So we had those things. We also had damage reports that were official uh, from people who had survived and then written official accounts for the Navy. In addition to that, people had self-published memoirs or some men, uh, particularly one man named Glenn Morgan, who was a bugler on the ship, He had written multiple handwritten accounts of exactly what happened moment by moment. So we were able to collect all of these details and really sort of like a a filmmaker with a camera, try to focus in on different parts of the ship at different times and what different sailors and officers were experiencing 
moment by moment to give that really detailed account of what happened. Uh, one document that we got at the really the last minute was the transcript of the court of inquiry that was held in on August 13th, 1945 at Guam, immediately after the survivors were rescued. And that shed a lot of light that we didn't have before on exactly what happened in those final moments. Mm, but a lot had happened in between that, which we will get to certainly. But first, how many escaped once McVeigh did give the orders to abandon ship, knowing that some jumped before? We estimate that about 300 men went down with the ship, and so that would leave something under 900 to make it into the water alive. And when I say alive, you know, that's sort of a relative term because some men died very quickly, even within the first hour. Mm. But we do estimate that there were something around... Several hundred remained alive throughout those five days. And they splintered into different groups. How many rafts did they have? We believe that there were 12 rafts actually aboard or that made it off the ship. But also you have to remember, people started abandoning ship very soon after the torpedo hit, all the way until she sank. And so this was about a mile that they were spread out over during, you know, for which that time. Also, those who abandoned ship on the low side were more likely to have supplies as they slid off the ship into the water. But, you know, protocol is that you're supposed to abandon ship on the high side. And that's where the majority of the men actually did abandon ship. And so there were no supplies. So these were the men that were in the water just swimming Mm. and they had nothing. Some of them didn't even have life jackets at the beginning. And then the groups that went down on the low side, they had a couple of the rafts, but there was really only about 30 men on the rafts. The rest were either in life jackets, just swimming or on floater nets. Floater nets meaning? Yeah, so floater nets were these large, like 15 square foot nets about that had pieces of cork every few feet that would keep them above water. So the men would, you know, be spread out on these or holding on to the edge of these nets to stay, you know, afloat as best they could. Sarah Vladek and Lynn Vincent are authors of a book about the downing of the Navy cruiser Indianapolis. When we come back, the perilous days that followed when hundreds of men succumbed to hunger, injuries, and sharks. This is On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott, and we're learning today about the worst disaster in U.S. naval history. The Navy cruiser Indianapolis is remembered for a cataclysmic loss of life after being downed by Japanese torpedoes in July of 1945. While nearly 900 men abandoned ship and were prey to sharks for a harrowing five days. Here, remembered by the weathered character Quint, played by Robert Shaw in the movie Jaws. Lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eye. When he comes at you, doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white and then... Oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red. Despite all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in and they rip you to pieces. 
Well, the tragedy is part of a true story that unfolded beginning on July 30th of 1945. The tale and the court-martial of the captain that followed is covered in thorough, sometimes excruciating detail by Lynn Vincent and Sarah Vladek in Indianapolis. The true story of the worst sea disaster in U.S. naval history and the 50-year fight to exonerate an innocent man. I caught up with them just before the Savannah Book Festival. After days at sea, their skin burned, their tongues swelled with dehydration. Many people would just begin losing their minds. And some fantasize that if they got back to the ship, they'd find food and safety out of the water. It's harrowing to read about these men so connected and united in their duty on board Indy, now desperate and calculating the best way to kill a man if they became violent. How, how did they talk to you about these hours and days of despair. Well, many of the stories that were expressed were kept between these men until very close to the end of their lives. They realized that if they had not shared these stories or if they do not share these stories, no one would ever know once they're gone. And so they had asked me initially when I started interviewing the survivors, you know, they'd said, Oh, don't tell anyone this, don't share this. It's too much. Or it it paints a bad picture of someone, you know, because We all want to think of everyone as heroes, but, you know, the truth is we're human and everyone wants to survive and people may not have done the best things in order to survive. And so, you know, but as the, as these survivors got toward the very end of their lives, they said, no, we really want you to tell the whole story. We want people to know what took place. And, you know, that, that was a lot of really hard things to, to tell and to do it respectfully. And we didn't want to use real names. I'm sorry, we didn't use any names when we were telling the stories of those who, you know, may have done things that were not heroic, but were done in order to preserve their lives or their best friend's lives. And so we tried to tell those stories amidst the shark attacks and the dehydration and the fights that went on just, in, you know, it really was a tale of human survival and in the best and the worst light. So one of the shark stories that stands out is uh, a young man, 19 years old, named L.D. Cox. And he saw a man next to him get snatched by a shark. And it was so close that the attack caused a wave to break over him, just like he was at the beach. And when he looked, his friend was gone. A second attack that's very vivid to me was a man named Eugene Morgan, He was looking at one of the floater nets that Sarah mentioned, and there were about a dozen men on the floater net. And all of a sudden, it was attacked by something like 10 or 15 sharks. And it was a frenzy of froth and foam and fins. And then within less than a minute, the entire net and all the men on it were gone. Mm. It is just harrowing. And after days at sea... And they really began losing their minds. Um, Sarah, you (laughs) referred to some of the depravity, but how did they describe it? These men were doing whatever they could for the greater good. And these were their brothers. And these decisions were not taken lightly. I mean, it affected the men who teamed together. And, you know, to take a step back and give you a little bit more on that story, you know, their men had lost their minds by this point. They were totally hallucinating and their, you know, brain swelling, their 
drinking salt water. They're close to death and they're just taking out people around them. A lot of it is because, remember, they're covered in oil and they're confused. So they're now thinking these are Japanese people attacking them. So they're trying to fight back. They're not in their right mind. And, you know, these men that are hallucinating are taking out men that are healthy or as healthy as you can be at that point in the water. And so the the group of individuals who decided to team up and say, if anyone starts attacking anyone else, we'll take them out first. They agonized over this decision and it affected them the rest of their lives. I mean, you know, two of them took their own lives not long after surviving. And so it's, it was something that was done for the greater good, but at even the cost of part of, I think, their souls, because it was just so devastating to have to do that to a shipmate that you thought so highly of. Mm, I just found myself screaming, why did no one at Sinkback know that Indy had been sunk? Why? It's a multitude of reasons, and sadly, one of the biggest reasons was complacency. Uh, as I mentioned before, the southern part of the Pacific, the South Pacific Philippine Sea, was considered safe. At least it was considered safe by those who weren't paying attention. Those who were paying attention did know that there was an enemy submarine threat, a Japanese submarine threat, but that information was kept paradoxically, on the highest levels, the highest levels of classification. So in addition to complacency, what you had was a failure a failure to communicate. So you had a failure to communicate the submarine threat on the western half of the Philippine Sea with the commanders on the eastern half at Guam, and those people failed to communicate a threat to Captain McVeigh. And in addition to that, uh, it was con later considered a failure that... Um, there was no escort sent. So in addition to those lacks of communication, as Sarah mentioned, all the communications were out aboard Indianapolis. So even though there were heroic radio men in the radio rooms trying to send out distress signals, those distress signals did not reach shore. And then in addition to complacency and a lack of communication, there was also incompetence. Uh, there was a lieutenant named Stuart Gibson who was in the arrivals office in the Philippines, and he had received a message that said not to report the arrival of combatant ships. The reason for that instruction was to cut down on routine message traffic. And he thought to himself, well, gee, if I'm not supposed to report the arrival of combatant ships, I guess I'm not supposed to report the non-arrival of combatant ships. Mm. And he was later discipline for that, although it was a slap on the wrist compared to what happened to Captain McVeigh. Right. We'll definitely want to know more about that. But first, let's let's get to the beautiful part that they were indeed saved. Nearly 600 men died in those five days, it sounds like. Uh, they were discovered five days later, almost by chance. So what happened there? Actually, the rescue part of the story is really one of our favorite parts of the story. Uh, Lieutenant Gwynn was flying routine patrol and he was so he was testing out a new antenna and the antenna had broke off. And so he had gone back to check it out. And when he opened up the doors and he looked down, he saw an oil slick and, you know, they're way, way up. There's no way they could see people in the water at this point. But he saw the oil slick and he thought it was a submarine. And so he you know, orders his co-pilot or 
to dive down. They're going to open the Bombay doors. And just as they're opening the Bombay doors, they look and they see heads in the water. And we don't know who this is. You know, we don't know if it's enemy. We don't know if it's our own. There's no reports of major losses. And so he doesn't know what's going on. He calls it in ducks on the pond and he starts circling and he's seeing more and more men in the water and they're spread out over something like 25 miles at this point because, you know, the ones on the rafts had drifted further than the men in the water that were swimming. And so they're spread out in different groups. They're not even aware of each other. You know, the survivors at this point don't even know that there are others in the water other than the ones close to them. And so Chuck Gwynn spots these men, calls it in, and all of a sudden, you know, other pilots start arriving. And I think Lynn really wants to tell you the Adrian Mark story. So I'm going to toss the baton over to her on this. (laughs) The reason I really want to tell you the Adrian Mark story is because when I was in the Navy, I was in the aviation community. And this man, Adrian Marks, was the pilot of a, of a Catalina, which is a seaplane. And I think he is just one of the absolute heroes of this story. Adrian Marks is one of the pilots that flies up in response to Lieutenant Gwynn's uh, distress sighting message. And once he is there, he is just astonished at the scope of the disaster that he can see unfurling underneath him. He sees hundreds of men in the water and... Uh, by this time, uh, Lieutenant Gwen, another aircraft that had come to the scene, and Marx's own crew had kicked out all the rescue gear that they had. So they had, you know, water casks and they had rafts and they had uh, portable radios that they hoped that they could dump into the water and that people would understand how to use them. But now the sun is going down and... Everyone knows, all the aviators know, that no rescue ships will arrive in the area for at least 12 hours. Well, it's against regulations and against policy for Marks to land his seaplane in the open sea. The, t- the swells are 12 feet high. A seaplane can land in the sea, that's its purpose, but it's supposed to be like in a, a smoother area. Um, And so that's why those landings in the open sea were both dangerous and forbidden. And as Marx is looking down and considering that, his crew looks down and they can see men still being taken by sharks. Mm. And he decides, you know what? The rules be damned. I'm in a position to save some of these men and I'm going to make an open sea landing. And so he lands that plane successfully in the water. And he starts to water taxi around, and they're able to crowd 53 survivors onto his plane while they're waiting for the other, the the actual surface ships to show up. We're learning about the sinking of the USS Indianapolis 74 years ago next week. Sarah Vladek and Lynn Vincent are co-authors of a book called Indianapolis about the subject. There are many stories of heroism here and survival, along with retribution for commanding officer Captain Charles McVeigh, who was court-martialed. What happened? So the Navy went through the process of looking at what they could charge Captain McVeigh with. And what that came down to was the failure to call abandoned ship, which they very quickly proved that he did. Um, There was multiple testimonies given during the court of inquiry and in the court martial showing that he gave the order and that it was passed verbally from sailor to sailor. 
And then the second charge they brought up against him was failure to zigzag. And what zigzagging was, was a maneuver used at that time to evade Japanese or enemy submarine torpedoes. Well, by that point in the war, this was common practice. The Japanese actually factored this into their maneuvers so that they would, you know, accommodate for the zigzagging. In fact, Hashimoto had even planned with that in mind. And so during this court martial, what happened is they bring in, you know, for the first time ever, they bring in the enemy to testify against Captain McVeigh. You know, this, this was not done prior to this. Actually, a captain had never been brought in for court martial for the loss of a vessel during wartime prior to this either. So, you know, this was all something set up to point a finger because you had 879 families who wanted someone to blame. And this was very much in the press. It was, you know, national news, what was going on with this court-martial. And they bring in Commander Hashimoto to testify against Captain McVeigh. And what Hashimoto said through a translator was that he would have sunk the ship no matter what. But that's not what the translator conveyed. And Hashimoto not speaking English, he understood, but he couldn't convey properly that that's not what he said. And so the failure to zigzag was really kind of a a bogus charge because it wouldn't have mattered. He would have been able to sunk the ship no matter what. And an accelerated trial to get him to court martial. Mm -hmm. What did happen to him? Captain McVeigh, first of all, after his conviction, which ruined his career, he was sent to a staff job. He would never again be in command, and he retired in 1949, four years after his court-martial. And then he went into insurance, and it was very sad, you know, because he was the commander of this proud flagship and had a distinguished career prior to taking command of Indianapolis. And instead of staying, you know, in touch with his uh, fellow officers and joining fraternities as men did at that time when they were retired. He just faded into the background. And the saddest thing was is that not all of the Indianapolis families blamed Captain McVeigh for the loss of their sons and brothers and husbands, but many did. And the fact that they did was directly attributable to the fact that the Navy said it was his fault. They convicted him. And so for many, many years after the court-martial, Captain McVeigh would receive these terrible letters from families of the lost that said things like, if it wasn't for you, I'd be celebrating Christmas with my husband right now. Or if it wasn't for you, my girls would have a father. And these letters seemed penned in acid. And they came on birthdays of the lost, on the anniversary of the sinking, and they never stopped. And For many, many years, he received them. In uh, 1960, the Indianapolis survivors held their first reunion, and Captain McVeigh was invited as the keynote speaker. And one of the wonderful parts of the story we find is that the men still supported him after all those years. However, the letters never stopped coming, and in 1968, it became too much, and Captain McVeigh committed suicide. It was just one tragedy on top of 
several others in this story. But for you, those survivors, those who first started meeting in 1960 at a reunion, Sarah, you said 17 years with these people. And and for both of you, a race against the clock, really, to talk with these survivors. How many are alive now? Absolutely. I mean, when I started, there were 117 survivors alive, and now there are 14 still living. And the youngest is going to be 92. So... You know, you're right. It's a, it's coming to an end, and every time it's like losing a grandpa. So you know, it's been, it's been such a treasure and such a blessing to get to share their lives, you know, parts of their lives with them and their families, and become so close to them. But it's also really, really hard to go to 117 memorial services. Yeah, I'm so sorry, um, but you know, I'm wondering about how they feel about their story now being told. Lynn, you're a Navy veteran. What what does it mean for you to see these men and, and really their families suddenly have this story exposed? I'm welling up a little bit as you ask that question because there are, you know, tens and hundreds of thousands and millions, if you look back through history, of men and, of course, more recently women who have done this heroic service, and it's it's a very quiet heroism. There's not a lot of fanfare. You know, most people who serve in the military, they don't get a parade when they come home. And so to be able to tell these stories, just the ordinary story of the ordinary sailor or the ordinary officer to just show how they were able to serve their country and many of them to make the ultimate sacrifice is just so meaningful to me and to the larger military community. It's been a real honor. Well, I am so grateful that you shared this story with us. And I want to let listeners know that, you know, this is a deep story, but there's so much more. There is, as you say in the title, the fight to exonerate an innocent man. And there's this whole relationship and after story with Hashimoto that is just fascinating. So I will leave that to them as I thank you so much, Sarah Vladek and Lynn Vincent, for joining us. Thank, thank you. you. That's from my earlier conversation with Sarah Vladek and Lynn Vincent, co-authors of the book Indianapolis. It's the true story of the worst sea disaster in U.S. naval history. The USS Indianapolis sank on July 30th of 1945, which is 74 years ago next week. I spoke with them just ahead of the Savannah Book Festival earlier this year. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Jake Troyer, and LaRaven Taylor. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Allison Kraussman and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our Dean of Grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Sarah Shariari is managing editor for GPB News. You can join the conversation with questions or comments. Call us at 404-500-9457. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. This is On Second Thought.